0: mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices message and data rates may apply Bank of America NA, member FDIC it's very
1: difficult to keep the line between the past and the present
2: do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and
1: take possession of a living being we may be through with the past but the past is not through with us
0: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with
2: Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps.
0: We're not going to reveal Genevieve Koski's secret identity here, but we can say she's off on a mission this week and she'll be back on a subsequent show, assuming her mission is successful and we're all still alive two weeks from now. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, it's supervillains, secretive heroes, and slippery schemes and a pair of films about characters with covert missions to save the day. Keith, at this point, I expect you to talk.
3: No, you expect me to die. No, wait, no, that's 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 not how this part goes at all. I think you got that backward.
0: Yeah, what can I say? I'm aiming to be the bad Bond girl, not the good Bond girl. Uh, you want to tell us what this week's mission is going to be?
3: I'll choose to accept it. Brad Bird's Incredibles 2 hit movie theaters and promptly broke the record for the biggest ever opening for an animated film. It was a heavily anticipated sequel thanks to the enduring success of Bird's 2004 film, The Incredibles, a flashy, stylish movie about a family of superheroes dealing with a dad's midlife crisis and the kids' coming-of-age crises at the same time. The new film takes up exactly where the old one left off, throwing viewers right into the action. The same can be said of 1964's Goldfinger, the third movie in the James Bond film series that started with Dr. No in 1962 and continued with From Russia with Love in 1963. Like Incredibles 2, it's a flashy, stylish movie about secret identities, fancy futuristic gadgets, and a constantly escalating series of confrontations. But the two movies also have some major differences in their specific concerns and in their intended audiences.
0: On part one of this week's podcast, we'll look at Goldfinger, at the never-ending demands and decade-to-decade tonal shifts of the Bond franchise, and the endless appeal of the spy genre with its fancy technology and its wish-fulfillment fantasies of being smooth, capable, and more in-the-know than anyone else. And in part two, we'll bring in Incredibles 2, a superhero movie that adopts a lot of the tone and conceit of classic spy films. We'll talk about how the superhero and spy genres relate to each other, how each of these films remakes some familiar tropes, and especially how their soundtracks help tell the story. But first, I've got a question for you guys. Do you remember whether Genevieve's costume had a cape? I'm getting a little worried about how long she's been gone.
1: He's the idol of every woman. Who are you? Bond. James Bond. The envy of every man. The nemesis of the treacherous Mr. Goldfinger. 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 A term in thrill making cinema the entertainment. The man with the mind. A three-time winner for Fleming's Secret Agent 007. <laughs> My name is Pussy Galore. Isn't it customary to grant the condemned man his last request? You've asked for this. Come and purr over Anna Blackman as Pussy Galore. <coughs> the female who is all feline. Also starring Gertrober as Goldfinger. International cheat, international menace. Gentlemen! Goldfinger, why weren't we told the New York and the West Coast weren't on this? Goldfinger. I made a delivery. Where is my money? And you owe me one million bucks. Goldfinger, the man with a finger in every pie. His goal, Fort Knox, the world's biggest bank. His enemy, 007, the world's wiliest, toughest gentleman agent with a license to kill. 007, it spells Bond. James Bond, mixing business with girls and thrills girls and fun girls and danger the hotter the danger the cooler he takes it i think you've made your point goldfinger thank you for the demonstration choose your next witches isn't carefully mr bond it may be your last do you expect me to talk no mr bond i expect you to die.
0: A lot has been written over the years about some of the unpleasant biases and beliefs of Ian Fleming, the author who created James Bond, and how those beliefs express themselves through a predictable pattern where Bond, representing England's brand of cultural imperialism, kills his way through waves of foreigners and other inferior types. Fleming's character reportedly came out of his dissatisfaction with the way Britain's hold on colonies like Jamaica, where Fleming had a home, was decaying in the years after World War II. Bond was the ultimate fantasy for a man worried about the fading of the British Empire. He was a suave, in-control, handsome man who immediately seduces every woman he meets, always has an answer to any confrontation, and has been specifically licensed to kill anyone he feels he needs to kill to further the superiority and strength of the British Empire. It can be a little hard, though, to see Fleming's reported bitterness and nationalism in a movie like Goldfinger, which is expressly fairly light and funny. Not all of the Bond tropes have aged well, particularly the way Bond goes through female sidekicks, who often show up just long enough to show a little skin or imply a sex scene before they get killed. The Bond films love their beautiful women, but they don't necessarily love them alive. Still, Goldfinger doesn't dwell on death. If anything, it focuses more on gags like Bond calling out the villain, or Goldfinger, for cheating at golf or cards. And then there's that famous exchange, you expect me to talk? No, I expect you to die. In today's grim and gritty hero environment, those lines would land with a sonorous impact. Here, they're a bit of banter, not much heavier than the exchanges between heroes and villains in the television version of Batman, which launched two years after this film. Goldfinger was the third in the cinematic Bond series, and the third to star Sean Connery as the famous super spy who likes his martinis shaken, not stirred. But it was the first to really play up the humor, and to focus heavily on Q-Branch and the gadgeteering adventures that go into Her Majesty's Secret Service. Its famous Aston Martin, for instance, is so packed with defensive devices because various people on the crew kept suggesting new ones to add. Which speaks pretty clearly to the specific kind of fantasy James Bond is portraying. It's kind of boys in their toys world full of gear and vehicle and gadgets. They're all controlled by one man who gets all the best lines, all the best ladies, and all the best moments. But while Goldfinger is in some ways a major inspiration for the pattern of the Bond films that followed, it also feels like a bit of an anomaly, both different from the two movies that preceded it and from the more modern movies that followed it. There's a bit of a global conspiracy in Goldfinger, but the film lacks a world-spanning criminal or terrorist organization like Spectre or an overtly anti-British group like Smirsh. It mostly hinges on the greed of one jovial, dishonest man who's really obsessed with gold. That might explain why Goldfinger is so memorable, and why it's such a specific target for satire, for instance in the Austin Powers movies. Its budget was greater than the first two Bond movies put together. Its fight scenes are bigger and more elaborate, its ambitions are higher, and its strengths more pronounced. But it's also in some ways a fun, silly movie that expressly knows its limits – Here, Bond isn't really trying to save the world, or the British Empire. He's trying to take down that petty jerk who uses binoculars and a partner to cheat at gin rummy just because he likes the feeling of winning. It isn't necessarily a blow for the sterling ideas of Her Majesty and all her faded glory. It's a blow for good taste, fair play, and for people who don't like seeing a good bowler hat wasted on murder.
1: And incidentally, we'd appreciate its return, along with all your other equipment. Intact for once when you return from the field. Oh, you'd be surprised the amount of wear and tear that goes on out there in the field. Anything else? Well, I won't keep it for more than an hour or so if you give me your undivided attention. We've installed some rather interesting modifications. You see this arm here? Now open the top and inside of your defense mechanism controls. Smoke screen, oil slick, rear bulletproof screen, and left and right front wing machine guns. Now, this one I'm particularly keen about. You see the gear lever here? Now, if you take the top off, you'll find a little red button. Whatever you do, don't touch it. Now why not? Because you'll release this section of the roof and engage and fire the passenger ejector seat. Ejector seat? You're joking. I never joke about my work 007.
0: Okay, guys, before we get into anything else about this movie, since we were worried that we might spend the whole conversation talking about the problematic, uh, can we just talk about how great Monty Norman's James Bond theme is and how great the score on this movie is in general?
3: Yeah, tip of the hat to John Barry for the score, who, who, you know, Monty Norman does the theme song, and then Barry does sort of the sweeping, epic-sounding music of all the Bond movies up to a certain point.
0: There's some action in this movie that it just, it's the rhythms of it, the beats of it are so different from modern action in a lot of ways. And to some degree, like, just, you know, watching him tear around in a car feels a little slow to me by comparison. And the score is so there, like, it's so immediate and intense and exciting, but also just bouncy in a really upbeat way and I, I think it really makes the action sequences pop here a lot more than they would otherwise
2: yeah i agree with that we spent you know a good 15 20 minutes before we started recording this <laughs> episode just uh doing bits of the score and the song by uh shirley bassey which i think is certainly a top five uh, t- oh, yeah. title sequence right? i think
3: uh, top five title sequence top five bond theme song for sure, for sure. Uh, for, it's simple maybe the f- top i don't know i to think about yeah, it. what's better I Actually, really like Skyfall. <laughs> yeah. What about? Uh, I understand it's Adele's personal
2: song. Too. Nobody does it better. <laughs> that's, what about that one? That's a good one. That's a good one. What are some mm-hmm. other good Bond themes?
0: I'm I'm sorry. I'm just I'm seeing a uh, Spectre and like the exploding squid on screen. Uh, it <laughs> a was view to kill. A view to you know kill is pretty good. Yeah, it's good. I, I like
3: mm-hmm. Live and Let Die. I think. Oh, it's a very good song. Yeah. Uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Another Shirley, oh, sure. Shirley Bassey. Sure. It's a good yeah, one too. Yeah. So
0: there, like, I I think it is safe to say that music has been a fairly strong element of the Bond films uh, in a lot of different ways. And I mean, we're going to talk a lot about just some of the signifiers of like James Bond as a character and like this franchise as a whole, but One of the reasons I think that Bond has become so indelible is just because the signifiers extend into so many aspects of the filmmaking, into the score, into the opening title sequence, into – this was apparently the first film with an opening credits like song of the movie, quote unquote – I mean that was just a piece of trivia that popped up when I was researching this apparently yeah it's
3: definitely one where a lot of the elements you know as we'll talk about some more but what do we think of as James Bond comes comes, the cold open yeah 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 Mm -hmm. it was was the first of the cold open
2: I believe I often complain about I think you have reason to complain about certain tropes or callbacks or things that that happen in franchises that become tired with James Bond there's just something satisfying to have these like compulsory elements that come up part of that is the music and some of it is you know when he orders his martini or says his name and you just expect those elements to be in the film. And the, 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 for some reason, they just they continue to be satisfying and not tiring. I'm not really sure what's behind that phenomenon. But Goldfinger does a great job of establishing that, some of those things and, and reinforcing them in memorable ways.
0: I, I want to say that part of it is because there's such small things. Like it doesn't slow the film down for him to ask for a martini shake and not stirred or mm-hmm. to introduce himself as Bond, James Bond. It's not like. Uh, you know, and now we've got to have a ten-minute uh, sequence of the Minions doing a cover of whatever song of okay. the week in blah-blah-blah language. Like, it doesn't slow down the film; it's it, it can just be dropped in there. But also, these things are very specific ways to signify who he is as a character, like his prissiness and his specificity. But also, I don't know. I just I think of him as being a model for the type of man that Playboy always pretended it was aimed at, mm-hmm. like a man who has a very specific 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 drink order, uh, which is a fancy drink order, and if it's any other way, he can tell. It's not just that he orders this specific thing. It's this: (laughs) (laughs) if you stir that martini, he's going to take one sip of it and throw it in your face. He's a
3: sophisticate. Like, I mean, there's a whole scene with them drinking the disappointing brandy, and they all kind of (laughs) take turns noting, "Yeah, yeah, it is kind of not top-notch brandy here." And it's uh, it's a a great detail in this movie.
0: Or him scolding Jill at the beginning for for even thinking about drinking champagne like above a certain temperature because such a thing is not
2: done. What is this badass? as? <laughs>
0: it's as bad as listening to the Beatles without earplugs. So Ear yeah. This, this, is the, like,
2: this is the part of the podcast where we spend 10 minutes talking about his terrible opinion of the Beatles.
3: Yeah, it's such a, th- it's a throwaway line but I think it just very much cemented at that moment in time when the Beatles were for kids, you know, and not for sophisticated grown-ups who had sex and drank uh, champagne, you know, yeah. It's uh, it,
2: was, it was kid stuff. But then you also, yeah, I guess it would be kid stuff because they, you can't, they wouldn't, if you didn't bring them at that point he certainly wouldn't have embraced them later on when they uh they got
0: more and more popular
2: well then we got more experimental Mm -hmm. and uh, so so i think that would be even more estranging for james bond But it's like come on really yeah it's it's a it's a a, it's
3: a a clunker of a line these days maybe maybe I'm sure
2: sure it got laughs what what, what, what about uh, the Dave Clark five I'm sure
3: it spoke to a very real cultural divide generation gap in 1964 that that has since it doesn't make quite as much sense anymore for sure
0: yeah I mean I to me it still makes a little bit of sense because they did end up going experimental because they covered such a wide range of music and because they were always they were a popular band and the Like, he's not about populism. He is directly about Mm -hmm. elitism.
3: Yeah. But I mean, I think there's sort of a cultural prejudice among uh, that generation against the Beatles and rock and roll and and anything the kids were into that is is less obvious watching the, you know, you're, you're not thinking of that when you're watching the film today.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's an interesting thing about like Bond in specific. And I mean, looking, we paired this with Incredibles, like a large chunk of the Incredibles primary cast are teenagers or kids. And there are a lot of like big teenagers or kids emotions. And we're living in a time where like we're coming down off of the height of the YA craze. But there's been so much in cinema focused on young people and the big emotions of young people. James Bond is expressly an adult. I mean, he, his, all of his signifiers are built around casual sex and drinking alcohol and like playing uh, gambling games. Like he <laughs> golf plays an important part of the story in this film. Like yeah. that's, that's something that doesn't crop up in a lot of like your, your YA action films. Well, I mean,
3: a lot of Ian Fleming's passions find their way in, in, into Bond and his taste. I mean, he was into fine dining and, and uh, fine alcohol and, and, you know, it, like call round a Golf. Living okay? high in the former colonies and <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, well
0: I was gonna ask a little about kind of your relationships to the Bond franchise. I am relatively uh, uneducated in my Bond movies. This is the first time I've watched Goldfinger. I still haven't watched the films that come before um, it. Uh, I've never read any of the books. I've seen them all of the modern ones, um, but a lot of the older ones I never went back and filled in. Scott, I think you're in a similar boat?
2: Similar, maybe a little bit bit better but very spotty Uh, bond has always been somewhat of a blind spot i've probably seen you know maybe a dozen to 15 but spread out Uh, i've seen something from every bond you know i mean i i I really liked uh, the one i gravitated toward in college was on her majesty's secret service just because it was such an unusual bond and more sober and more in what my pretentious self felt was going to be more the acceptable range of bond experiences but i have sampled a bit from each uh era and uh and to my mind anyway this this is my favorite of of the ones I've seen I just think it hits that just kind of sweet spot in terms of what you want from a Bond movie it's not as serious as, as the ones have been recently it's not as ridiculously silly as some of the Roger Moore things got but it is uh, full of fun and uh, gadgetry and and has, a, has a, such a lightness to it splashy look I mean I, I mean, I think it's pretty solid Bond no Keith
0: oh, yeah. you're, you're a resident expert yeah, he's the expert
2: I'm not going to win any trivia nights there's people
3: that I never declare myself an expert on anything cause there's always a ton of people he's what, 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 what did I he just give back I, to I, you? I, I what did I always just to
2: give back to you today. You gave
3: back a Blu-ray box set of all the Bond films. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in deep with this one. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, it's one of those things where even the bad ones are good. I think uh, I think they all have something to offer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the series and all its... Uh, excesses and traditions and 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 so on uh when i was 10 years old i saw the first film ever by myself and that was a film called octopussy and i'm sitting there and it's, <laughs> and it's got a, a tiny jet and it's got a uh, you know james bond running away for a tiger It's it's got butts you know, I mean, and, 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 and like as a ten-year-old on, on the cusp of something, these are kind of <laughs> kind of showing you what what you might enjoy uh, in, in films in the future. Yeah, so now I, I have a I have a long relationship with the Bond movies, and this is a very good one. Uh, it's one of my favorites, and I think other uh, Connery. Bond films. I think from From of Love might actually be a better movie, but it's not like Bond coming into its own quite yet. It's much more of a grounded Cold War thriller, relatively speaking. But um, Cold Fingers, is uh, super entertaining. I remember I showing it to my wife, and I was like, I wish I could watch this for the first time again. It's a. Uh, it's, 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 Did she it's, like it? She... Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. she's
2: yeah. yeah. But I mean, just like just by way of introduction in this movie to have him <laughs> scuba diving with a little duck disguise that he's doing. So it's there. like a it,
0: it, yes, it's uh, it's, it's, uh, a it's a yeah. gull, it's a seagull, seagull, but. It looks like a very drowned seagull. Right,
2: right, what, and even more so
0: when he kind of throws it aside and it just kind of like flops over in its side in the water.
3: Bond, bond taking off the wetsuit to have a, a tuxedo underneath it. Shots, kiss.
0: Such, it's such a wonderful moment. What was yeah. that? Pussy rated? I'm I'm trying it was to figure PG. out. PG. It
3: was PG. It was, was pre PG thirteen.
0: <laughs> All right, so I, I don't get to be scandalized at ten year old Keith uh, sneaking into a theater. No, was it wasn't. that see was, was
3: dropped off.
2: Uh, you know, my parents. There's never to been to an rated bonus. Bond, has there? No. No. no, that's part of the whole thing. Part really, whole I was yeah. completely unaware of that. I mean, they have these elements, but they don't—they don't like go too far.
3: Yeah, I remember around the same time that Octopussy came out, they had like, back in the day, kids, but they used to like, you know, be sort of, sometimes as promotional things for movies, would be like half hour or an hour long specials that would run in syndication. I remember basically sort of an hour long special where celebrities, including I think Ronald Reagan, uh, talked about how much they loved the the Bond movies, and then like clips from all the Bond movies, like kind of a greatest hits montage. Like, I I need to see more of these films.
0: Wow, Uh, I mean, doesn't Casino Royale like feature... Naked Daniel Craig strapped to a chair, having his testicles whipped. How did they get away with that? Without an R rating?
3: Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, just something you see on the, uh, every street well, corner vi- it's these vi- days. It's violence.
3: It's just, it's right? just taking. It's just reflecting life back at us. <laughs>
0: You know, there's there's an honesty to that.
2: There, you can have an entire movie of somebody getting their testicles whipped, and he'd still it's still going PG thirteen. It's, it's not sold. Like,
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna take my. I've uh, already
2: pitched that. That's I now I'm have sorry on that.
0: if you haven't made it yet. Uh, I'm taking my my money from my remake of the Last Jedi and, and putting it just directly into <laughs> testicle whip the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Keith, this was supposed to be like a, a big diversion for the Bond films. Like it changed the tone, it brought in the technology, it, mm. it pumped up the humor. Like, are you aware uh, as as a scholar of Bond? Like, do you see a, this being like a major shift?
3: Yeah, I, I, you can see that. It's definitely kind of a, a hinge between the later ones, which are more gadget obsessed and more. Uh, the action gets bigger and, and the, the schemes of world domination get uh, more outrageous uh, after that. So, yeah, it's kind of it is a sweet spot. I think Scott has got that term uh, of uh, the two that came before and the, 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 at least the two that came after it. Honor Magic Secret Service is kind of an outlier. Times Are Forever is... Equally silly, uh, legally over the top is as, as you only live twice, which is very big, but, uh, it's kind but, of where bond as cultural phenomenon really mm-hmm. kind of kind of hits the accelerator, you know, with these, with some franchises, it feels like, you know, they're successful and then they're really successful. And I think that was the case with us.
2: I think it was important to recognize that it could be the phenomenon that it turned out to be and to invest in that idea and to, you know, even Tasha was noting that the budget for Goldfinger was larger than the first two films combined. And I, I think that that pays off so much on the screen in terms of just the, the, the scope of it. And the sets
3: are so, I mean, the Ken Adam is the production designer for, for the series for a long time. And, just like you know goldfinger's lair like that sort of like oh my gosh uh, sort of like it's not a ski lodge but sort of like sinister ski lodge
2: (laughs) sinister
0: ski lodge where literally everything is on gimbals and can like rotate or (laughs) retreat into the floor
2: pop up i I, I mean i just spent so long just thinking about what went into the construction of this whole these maps that that come up out of the floor then and then uh, then of course there's some toxic gas that also could get triggered i want to see a a separate film about this whole construction project is what i'm saying
0: Well, the scene is also just kind of hilarious because you've got his guests standing around like every time he triggers something, you've got to wait a good 30 seconds for it to rotate into place or rise up. And the whole time they're like, oh, what's going on now? I don't like this. I feel trapped. It's like the fourth or fifth time it happens. You think they'd be like, all right, I'm done with this meeting. I do not, I do not need to stand here and watch another wall rotate into place.
2: I also think in that scenario, you, you really don't want to just take the one million and go. <laughs> you, really, you really have to commit just sticking around in that situation because uh, yeah it 's not going to go well for you if you just take the money and run without participating in Operation Grand Slam
0: I assume that that particular sequence is a pretty direct inspiration for the whole business in in the first Austin powers where uh, seats uh, where everybody 's sitting around and like if you annoy him, your seat <laughs> just drops into a, like a pool of fire. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, this you know, a
3: similar specter scene and one of the, one of the ones that are coming up next, but I forget which one.
0: There's a, a degree to which this movie actually made me want to revisit Austin Powers. And, uh, you, you guys can feel free to hold me back from that. Cause I don't the think it would go I think it's really funny.
3: Yeah. yeah it was yet? really great. Um,
2: no? <laughs> no.
0: I don't end. know. I just, I have, I have such bad memories of the following ones. Oh, yeah. They
2: were, they, no. But the I never saw was, the third one. The third yeah. one looked quite poor. Yeah. yeah. And
0: it's the one that most uh, directly draws on this. Mm. Keith, you actually had a, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to throw back to the big box of paperback books column, mm-hmm. which, <laughs> do you remember how many Ian it Fleming had novels? most
3: of the Bond's in there and I've and I read them I think more or less in publication order but if you quiz me on it I'm, I'm going to blank on a lot of stuff but
0: but you did like this was an av club column where you you bought a giant box of paperback books uh and cheaply and then like went through them one by one
3: and yeah, that's <laughs> internet gold I mean, that'll, that'll get you traffic <laughs> like, like you will not believe I gotta you- I gotta pitch that now
0: but I remember – mostly I remember because I edited all these pieces and I just remember being really interested in just kind of over time you seem to be like tracking Fleming's kind of devolution as he went through the series mm-hmm. into basically getting more and more racist and like more and more excessive. I
3: don't know about more racist I because I, I think live and lead die is the second one and that's not great (laughs) uh that's really not great in many ways on that on that front but he gets grumpier and bond gets more and more tired i'm gonna blank on which one it is but one of the later novels is basically bond being sent to recuperate at a spa because he's just so broken down his mind shattered by all he's been through and 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 uh the tone is not as light as as the
0: film's I find that interesting in part just because, you know, the Daniel Craig Bonds were really like the first time I watched a bunch of Bonds with the same character, the same actor in a row. And Daniel Craig Bond from the beginning struck me as exhausted and beaten down Mm -hmm. and and barely functional. One of the things that strikes me about this film is just getting to see the the chipper young Sean Connery Bond who in the early moments of the film, he meets a woman – kind of pins her down on a chair like leers at her and like two minutes later they've had sex bear
3: in mind is this is the second woman we've seen him with within <laughs> the first leaving out the cold open within the first you know few scenes of the, of the, True. Of the movie
0: but and then five minutes later she's dead mm-hmm. and his reaction to that is huh okay <laughs> like you know as opposed to daniel craig bond who seems to experience he goes through the same patterns of love them and they die for certain values of love but uh, like he seems to feel each one deeply and emotionally Connery's just like I'm I'm out here having fun like if they choose to drop dead like what that's that doesn't reflect on me
3: uh, yeah I think Connery at this at this age this stage in his career is not really capable of that kind mm-hmm. of pain In the way Dan Craig I think was born looking pained you know mm-hmm. I don't, I'm always Struck by this line, Alan Moore wrote an introduction to an one edition of Dark Knight Returns or another, and it talked about how you realize certain things as you go on, and you realize, you know, naming off a couple of different ones, but but also it's like like you realize that James Bond is primarily motivated by his hatred of women. And like Moore's never expanded on that thought. And it's always like, I've always wondered like what exactly he meant by that, but you can kind of see that, you know, you squint and it's not really hard to see the character. It's just running through women because he doesn't really want anything to do with them in some ways.
0: I mean, there is a degree here. I, I just, I think of him, you know, smacking the woman on the ass by the pool. Just, mm-hmm. you know, there's huh. a sort of uh, like, I'm done with you. You can go now mm-hmm. attitude that stretches throughout the movie for me i mean that just makes pussy galore a more interesting character for me like i i actually really kind of like her character
3: did she feel coded as lesbian to you watching the movie? <laughs> genevieve is who's recording is is nodding quite quite I, that's violently. almost more
0: head thrashing I,
3: it's more so, explicit in the novel
0: i'm sorry did the character who is surrounded by other women who like all like seem to sort of look up to her and all kind of like look like her
3: I also like the I'm immune. <laughs> when, 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 don't oh, take your yeah. charms on me. I'm immune. Oh, for sure. Yeah,
0: but I mean, she can also just play as you know more sophisticated than say Jill, mm-hmm. who like there's something very rapey about that whole first sequence where he like he breaks into her room. Um, she's not wearing much, and then he like physically leans over her and pins her down, and it's kind of creepy. And like Pussy Galore isn't having it. Like he he kind of does the. Oh, it's your, it's a woman. All right, I got this. And she's like, nope.
3: <laughs> but could anything? I mean, could anything bad ever happen from sleeping with James Bond? Though,
0: yeah, probably not. Yeah. No, yeah. definitely, mm-hmm. definitely not. What do you think about uh, Connery's performance in general? You have any any particular thoughts on Connery Bond?
3: I mean, I think Connery's the best Bond in many ways, the definitive Bond in many ways. My heart is always with Roger Moore because that's the one I grew up with. That's the guy I grew up watching. But I I, I think. A lot, of, You know, I don't sure there's a lot of shading, you know, his characterization of Bond in any of the movies. I think it's more of, you know, it's a word that's overused, but I think truly in many ways an iconic performance. And in the sense that he's he's setting up an icon and, and establishing what the boundaries of, of that character are.
2: That's absolutely true. I mean, and I think it helps to be first to be able to be the person mm-hmm. to establish all of these things. And then everyone is going to be compared to that standard. So it's really hard for it would be hard for anyone to really match. Uh, Connery, except for you know Lazenby <laughs> but no, uh, uh, like
3: yeah, no, I, I don't hate on Lazenby i really one of my, I really wish that movie had been made with Connery. I think if that movie had been made with Connery instead of Lazenby, it would be undoubtedly
0: the best Bond movie
2: yeah, I think it's really still really good, but it's oh, been yeah. it's been a long time really good uh, except for
3: that turn to the camera uh stuff at the beginning, which is
0: awful, but uh, yeah. sorry which which movie are you talking Honor about? Honor
3: magic secret service uh, the the one uh George Lazenby film made after Connery left. Lazenby came in. They offered him uh, more, and he stepped away. And then, and then Sean Connery came back to play Bond. How, how, so how, many, how
2: many did he do after? after just that? just
3: one, Diamonds Are Forever, and okay. then and then to You know, to connect back to what we were talking about before, Roger Moore comes in and. They try to redefine the character in ways that just don't work right away because, I mean, just just the the iconography. They have him smoking cigars and drinking bourbon. <laughs> it's just that's not that's not what Bond does.
2: Yeah, I mean that's a really that's a challenge for the series overall. Is that, I mean, I did talk about how satisfying a lot of those tropes or things that are those ongoing things with each Bond are, but. It, you know they can get pretty tiresome too and and everything can start to feel pretty stale and it's you know and you have one person in the role for a long time it gets really stale i almost feel like that's happening with daniel craig already like he himself seems really tired to be playing that role which is you know i think reads on screen really Mm -hmm. uh if you you especially
3: when the material's not good as as inspector
0: he also just i mean he feels old for it like connery's a young bond like he's he's in the flush of health of of health and youth and he's still at an age where you feel like he could bed you know three beautiful women at night, like Daniel Craig feels like somebody who needs to take a pill to bed one beautiful woman a week
2: yeah he's well, he's had his testicles uh, whipped <laughs> on. <laughs> Uh, Daniel Craig is only
3: 50.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. But he's such a seamed man. Like, like he wears the weight of the world and in a great way. Like I really enjoy him as an actor. Uh, Like I've enjoyed a lot of his films and I enjoy it when he gets to kind of like break away from that character a bit and the gravity of that character a bit. But like, I, he's one of those people who may have come out of the womb like looking like they were ready to play grandfathers. Yeah,
2: that's an interesting point in that uh, to talk about another Bond, Pierce Brosnan. Like Pierce Brosnan's post-Bond career has been so fascinating to me in light of Bond, the fact that he played that role, and then you get kind of this tired, long in the tooth type of character in movies like matador mm-hmm. or, taylor, or, panama. And taylor panama just like that it, it makes it gives so much more depth to those characters than they would have already like pierce brosnan suddenly kind of came alive to me as an actor after bond and like maybe connery is just maybe the same way i mean you, you got to finally see him as an actor after he finished up Bond and started to do other things like Zardoz. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, like Zardoz. Which yeah, public. which
0: which really drew on his like acting skills. Acknowledged class, a bit. Acknowledge
2: classics such as Zardoz. Mm, I, I'm, it is for I'm, me. I know but, it's interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, an uh, interesting uh, movie. Uh, no, no, I'm maybe. not saying it's
0: not. I mean, in some ways, Bond is almost a male ingenue like he playing him does not require a whole lot of sophistication he's like he's a smirk and a couple of fists uh and he's got to look good in the tux but like here in particular he doesn't require a lot of like depth or or sadness or strength and after you've played that a bunch of times moving into something like the matador uh that does like require emotional reservoirs uh it, it just looks so much more interesting as a result and you could probably say that about anybody i mean the way people reacted to like even tom cruise in tropic thunder there's just sort of that feeling of you've been doing the same thing and it's the same thing that has a long line of the same thing going back decades upon decades so we have a sense for the flavor of it it just feels like you're part of this like very specific continuity and then when you step out of it it just feels like all the more refreshing and daring you know, because you're you're no longer part of this very predictable thing. Definitely. Does, do you have anything other else to say about Honor Blackman and her performance, or really just about that how that character is is written or her part in the story?
3: Yeah, I think you need a character that can hold her own against Bond after the women we've seen prior to this. I think she comes in and, and owns that uh, really well.
2: Uh, you know, it's a film that could survive. Without another performance that's is memorable, but uh, but she gives the film a boost. I think there's more more depth to that character than really Bond himself. I mean, there's a lot more to think about with her than than with him. You kind of know where he's coming from, so it kind of adds that the layer to the movie.
3: And the end, he he shows her the way, you know, way back to <laughs> to loving men again, and and. As a as a Oh wait.
0: <laughs>
3: uh, yeah.
0: What about Gert Frobe? He just uh, like I I was endlessly surprised by his character because he just does not really fit. I guess you know. I guess you have Blofeld. Like you have chubby smirking Bond villains. They're not all you know Spectre and Smirch, which I cannot get enough of saying. By the way, <laughs> Smirch, Smirch, Smirch. Mm-hmm. But he just <laughs> seems so delightfully petty.
3: Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I love him. He's just a jerk. He's just you know, it, it just a jerk operating on the largest possible scale he can manage with his money. You know, like he wants to cheat at golf, cheat at cards. He doesn't need to cheat at cards to make money, but it's it gives him a thrill to to be uh be a jerk. You know,
2: yeah, and and it gives us a thrill to see those cheats exposed both times that, in, I mean, gar- in cards and golf.
3: I, I think it works in part. You you know, you've met Goldfingers. They they don't tip. They harass the wait staff and and uh, <laughs> that's that's who yeah, they are. Yeah,
2: and, and they're swimming in money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. He's a wonderful villain. But why, though? What's the, what's the story with Oddjob, his devotion to, uh, to Goldfinger? He's a henchman.
0: That's
3: it. You You don't need more than that. Yeah, there might be some backstory in the novel, I'm forgetting, but I don't don't think so. I mean,
0: he's a very Cato kind of character. Like, Mm -hmm. he's that sort of, I want to say the word Oriental. He's from the mysterious Orient, so he has Mm -hmm. mysterious abilities, like the ability to kill a woman with a bowler hat from 50 yards away. (laughs)
3: Apparently. Like,
0: there's that, that. like 60s sense of exoticism like why why are all of the henchmen like the the mooks why are all of the mooks in this movie korean
3: they're not. He may have missed the line of dialogue, but, but he's he's in bed with China to sow chaos in the West by ruining our economy by irradiating all the. Ground. Oh, so those, okay. Those, those, those he's are the, referred to yeah, as Ahjub.
2: is Korean, Ajab Ajab is, Ajab
0: is Korean. Is, and I somehow I associated that with uh with all of the moves. No,
3: job is Korean, but, but yeah, but yeah he's he's, he's he's working with the Chinese, uh, the red Chinese, of course, the red yeah. Chinese. <laughs>
0: so I mean, there is sort of that threat to the British Empire, I guess. Through her allies and the world economy, but I just I never feel I never feel a threat to Britain here. I just I really just feel a threat to people playing golf without like <laughs> being cheated on.
3: Yeah, well, you know, he's a, he's a British villain though. He's he's despite his accent, he is f- from England, so he must be tracked down by Her Majesty's Secret Service.
0: Yeah, it just it feels. Given a lot of the stuff that Bond gets up to in later films where it, it's expressly about terrorism, it's expressly about you know the the concerns of the moment like so many franchises that spread out and go on like the Bond movies kind of try to find a way to fit into their era and to like evolve for the present and this this movie, I'm not sure it really tracks the the deep-seated concerns of 1964 well except for the, those Beatles of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
2: mean, that that all seems by design to be kind of a pure escapist experience and not not engage a, a really is, with the world as it is. I mean, that's almost what you know. I remember, I remember when the Born and the Eat movies came out, uh, Matt Damon really was upfront about having the series be a counter to what he thought. The james bond films represented you know which which were imperialism and, and i don't know if you used said racism but i mean the born movies are, are so grounded in the here and now and and uh and have a certain kind of social and political conscious to them that is absent from a, a movie like goldfinger
0: so i mean the bond movies especially like starting here where I, there's just the whole sequence with q branch that's like here's your devices we're going to have the setup and then you're going to see each one of these things play out like later. Like we're we're putting the arrows in your quiver. We're putting Chekhov's gun on the wall. There's like eight guns. You're going to use each of them in turn. Mm-hmm. But the, like this was sort of the transition into uh, what you're telling me was known as spy-fi.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just sort of this, this blurring of, of espionage and cutting-edge science. I mean, you'd see it. It would be hugely influential in the later seasons of The Avengers, which Honor Blackman was on before this. But, you know, you get all kinds of Bond parodies and ripoffs, and the line between parody and ripoff is a little thin. <laughs> but, I mean, you get the the Flynn movies, and you get In Like Flynn with James Coburn. You get Matt Helm with... Dean Martin, which kind of just sort of take the silliest elements of this and blow it up, but not even that much, you know, that they're, they're, you know, imitation is parody, but also imitation is like, oh, let's get some of that action for ourselves. You uh, know, it was not just, you know, the States and, and, and Britain. I just read a, a um, history of the making a 2001, um, a space odyssey and and. Arthur C. Clarke's partner in Sri Lanka was spending all their money on, you know, a Sri Lankan James Bond parody, which, uh, you know, I, I, there were other things like that across the world. I, I know there's some Hong Kong ones. So, yeah, this is kind of like, you know, ground zero for that. Where You, you get, a, get a daring man of mystery gadgets and and uh, there you go.
0: I'm a little fascinated when we we're kind of talking about what to pair with The Incredibles. There are so many films and shows that influenced it and and shaped it. But I, like to some degree, it all kind of goes back to Bond. And I feel like part of that is just it kind of wrapped up everything that it could find that was like fun about the spy genre, like the idea of I mean, the, the cold open here has Bond coming out of the water in a wetsuit with a disguise on his head, uh, pulling it off, infiltrating a facility blowing it up but also escaping like in time to show up in a cantina where a beautiful woman is shaking her boobs just in time to like walk in in his white tuxedo and not look back at the gigantic explosion behind him that he just caused. Mm-hmm. He knows what's going on. Nobody else does. Like, he has information that nobody else has. He has the power to, like, destroy things. But he also has the power to be, like, completely sophisticated and fit into any environment. And all of these things are such big draws. You know, this is the same genre would go on to give us movies like Spy Kids or like the French OSS 117 series uh as you say the born movies these films were so influential often when you go back to kind of the start of a movement like the the film looks Keith's favorite word dated or it just looks pale by comparison with all of the elaborations that have come after it. I'm curious whether you feel any of that here. I mean,
3: it's it's odd because you know so many of, of things that seemed like science fiction, you know, even when I was watching the Bond movies in the '80s, are now in our pocket on our phones. You know, I mean, I mean, look at the the elaborate tracking device with with the analog like dials that you use to follow things on a map. You know, and it's it's so far removed from ways. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I, but I think a good movie kind of creates its own world, and like you know, you can kind of forget all the advances in technology that happened after this, and, and wonder anew at the sophisticated tracking device that only involved uh, half the dashboard of a car.
2: There, there is kind of a, a timeless. Analog quality is some of those, some of the gadgetry in that car, mm-hmm. though, right? I mean, just you know, spraying o- gun oil or a little, yeah, right. Your, the spinning his, license machine plane, gun. I mean, my favorite, now. of course, the ejector seat, which is which has that wonderful lead up. Just like whatever you do, seriously, <laughs> whatever you do, do not do not press this this button. <laughs> it just looks so. The, like the most pressible thing you've ever <laughs> seen in your life you know those are all m- mechanical and, and something that, that that you could feasibly have in a car then then and now so it's not quite as space age or whatever is the uh tracking device
0: there's also the laser beam which oh, well, so great <laughs> we, we, mm-hmm. we've invented a thing called the laser beam for this oh. movie you know because this was really before industrial cutting lasers were a thing Keith, did the Bond movies previous to this have the, like, villain puts the hero in a death trap or villain tortures the hero thing?
3: Yeah, Bond getting tortured is is a device, you know, from the first book on Casino Royale. I'm trying to remember if Dr. No, the movie... Has it and and again my my re, my total recall for this this you know double digit spanning series <laughs> is not uh, that great but uh, it's certainly the most the earliest mem- really memorable
0: one that I can think of and and part of it is just that exchange you expect me to talk no I expect you to die so
3: it's wonderfully delivered too you know it's yeah just, just, it's, and
0: there's also just that image of the laser coming for your crotch mm-hmm. I mean like nobody comments on it like today I feel like it would be very hard to get away with that without some sort of comment being made. But, like James Bond really values that particular area of his anatomy, and like, there is more so than
3: most you know it is sort of subtext coming to the surface too there 's an element of kink to the way he 's the way he 's uh, strapped in there at at the disposal of the bad guy uh, who is coming for coming for his uh, privates you know it is not, it's not it 's not not sexual
0: and it 's also like he looks frightened he mm-hmm. looks frightened and unnerved, and that to me. It feels like that developed and just got bigger and bigger over time. I mean, when you look at uh, the most recent Bond movies with, with Craig, that feeling of the hero is always captured and then he's always tortured. And it, the torture seems to just be getting <laughs> bigger and bigger. And it's okay for the hero to be like frightened and and hurt and to show it during those scenes but it's so ritualistic it fascinates me because characters like like craig's bond uh and like a lot of the specifically male action heroes we have these days are not allowed to show emotion and are not allowed to show pain like they're basically allowed to show anger and a sort of like grim sadness but the the torture sequence always gets very performative, and it fascinates me that it's become such a codified, ritualistic part of Bond movies. All right. Well, with that uh, on that note, I think I'm gonna <laughs> strap you guys down and send lasers for your crotches. No, please uh, don't.
2: No, <laughs> I, I, I have like just a few things that I won't do, and that's one of them. I won't get strapped down with a well, laser.
0: Well, Scott, I expect you to talk. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that would probably do it. Wait, you, should you say that you expect me to die?
0: No, I I don't kill people. I don't know. This is a podcast. Okay. <laughs> this this is not the, to the, is not the torture right. cast. <laughs> That's taping next door. <laughs> We're headed over there later. Look, we'll be uh we'll be right back to get into some feedback on recent episodes. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. I wasn't around for Taxi Driver and First Reformed, and I still have not seen the latter, so I'm going to leave it to you guys to discuss the letters we have about these episodes. As a warning to our listeners, both of these questions deal somewhat with the ending of First Reformed, so if you haven't seen it and you plan to, you might want to skip past the feedback section this week. Scott, you want to kick us off?
2: Uh, Sure. Uh, Kyle in Boston wrote in asking what we thought about the use of the hymn Leaning on the Everlasting Arms in First Reformed. He writes, as a non-believer who studied at a Catholic college, I'm not well versed in Protestant songs, and so I'm not sure how common the song may be. But my immediate thought as the song began toward the end of the movie was of "Night of the Hunter" and Robert Mitchum singing the song. The sequence in First Reform doesn't mirror children being stalked by a killer, of course, but I did feel like there was some purposeful callback to "The Night of the Hunter," perhaps Toller's despair stalking him as he places the barbed wire around himself. I also thought that the visuals of Victoria Hill singing and the sounds seemed a bit detached, perhaps a note that we are falling into a dream state or following Toller's soul as he slips away from reality, something that might relate to the Night of Hunter's somewhat fairy tale feel. I may be wrong, and the song may be very common, but as a fan of The Night of the Hunter, having not heard the song much outside of that movie, and given Schrader's love for cinematic references, especially to those about men of God, as you all noted, I felt it was deliberate, but can't quite put my finger on why or how.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's got to be a reference, although it escaped me as as a reference tonight. The Hunter until until we got oh, this oh yeah to me well, I, um, I, I,
2: that that association is absolutely yeah yeah like in stone for me. I mean it's one of my favorite movies ever. The Night of the Hunter. So so but so
3: it, so why do you, do you see well, that, no, that, 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 that? that's
2: that's the thing I can't explain. I don't really see. I don't know what the connection might be, other than this practice of a corrupted form of Protestantism mm-hmm. that's that's happening in both films of, of of the cloth and, uh, and of parishioners are, are asserting values that, that they don't actually hold um, i'll take it yeah so it. Uh, because i mean that's what is the church the church is filled with those types of people that that have been shown to be quite compromised i mean I, you wouldn't necessarily say that of everyone uh, sitting in that uh, church but i think if there's going to be a connection between the nine of the hundred and first reform maybe that would be it just about corruption within a particular religion Tasha hasn't seen it, though, so she can't, she can't comment. I have no idea. Uh, Tasha, you're going to love it.
0: Yeah. I, I have a very hard time imagining hearing that song in a movie and not thinking of Night of the Hunter because, yeah. as you say, it's, just, it's such an indelible Yeah, I mean, There's certain songs memory. that are Just,
3: just Be Me. <laughs> uh, I feel stupid but yeah of course of course that's a connection
2: I think maybe it's just the way it's sung I guess yeah maybe because in, in Night of the Hunter it's just T has that well they both sing it Lily and Gish and mm-hmm. and, uh, and Robert Mitchum in, in unison towards the end there but uh, it has a, a slower creepier more menacing quality certainly in Night of the Hunter than it does in First Reform.
0: It's not hard to believe. Keith, you've got another one about the ending of First Reformed?
2: Absolutely.
3: Kevin writes, Hey, gang, I came across this tidbit in listening to a few interviews Paul Schrader gave on First Reformed on the A24 and DGA podcast and wanted to know what you thought. Schrader says he deliberately shot and edited the ending to be perfectly ambiguous as to whether Hawke's priest is miraculously saved at the end of the film by Seyfried's character, or if their kiss was all a figment of his dying imagination, the last thing he sees before the afterlife. Schrader also talked about how, after test screenings, he quizzed the audience about which way they thought the ending felt, and would re-edit it until he got a 50-50 ratio. I know intentional ambiguity is hardly a new thing in film, but I'm a little delighted how open and honest Schrader is about it and want to know how you feel. Thanks a lot. I really enjoy the show. Well, we did get into that a little bit on the podcast as well as, as, as a way it could possibly be read. And, you know, I think it's kind of a litmus test in some ways as, as to – how you view the whole, how you view the whole film and how how you view its sort of central wrestling between uh, despair and, and hope. It's 50 uh, is interesting you know is an interesting thing to go
2: for. I mean, first of all, I, I really like the idea of using test audience results to make your film more ambiguous, <laughs> which is really not what you think of a test audience. When you think of test audiences, you you think about films getting watered down or having to be altered because they got a bad score. Uh, when in fact, you can use. Test audiences in a different way, which is to really get a register of how people respond, and then tell your film creatively to a certain end. Which, so I kind of respect Schrader for doing that here. As I said in the on on the show on the episode, the film does set you up for the possibility of a of a transcendent ending or an ending an ending that isn't that we ne- aren't necessarily to take as literal. But I'm, I'm comfortable with any interpretation. Obviously, Schrader is. As well, so I don't, I don't really feel like taking a firm position on whether we're, what we're seeing is is real or not.
0: Do you have a leaning in terms of what you want, or is what you want the ambiguity?
2: The, what I want is the ambiguity. I think I, I just appreciated the ending as as it was, as it uh, the potential for what it could have happened and what actually happened. One thing I will say, maybe if I, if I were to lean toward one conclusion, it would be towards the more hopeful. Ending and I and I it was an, an idea that just kind of stuck in my mind after seeing it and Taxi Driver together and considering the full scope of Schrader's career and considering the evolution of the God's Lonely Man character and, and that this idea of that piece of narration in Taxi Driver about how how a person doesn't shouldn't devote themselves to morbid self attention that that they should uh, want to be like other people want to want to make those connections and how hard it is for. A Schrader character to make those connections, and so to to get to a point in first reform where where um, Ethan Hawke's character is really trying hard to to uh, connect with his parishioners and to become part of humanity and to solve his loneliness in some way. I mean, I, I like the the idea that he actually achieves that. That would be hopeful to me, just in the scope of. Schrader's career and that the, the the you know his use of that character you know throughout many of his most important movies
3: my head wants the 50/50 ambiguous end, ending and and only that and my, my heart
2: uh, wants her to be
3: in that room with him that's right
0: well that wraps up our feedback for this episode we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts their recommendations and their attempts to sing their way through Protestant hymns to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773 773- Two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpicture show. net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for further discussion. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Incredibles 2 and consider how it switches out Bond's smug, swinging bachelor fantasy lifestyle in favor of a family dynamic, and how that choice opens up a lot more opportunities for different kinds of stories and different flavors of fantasies. Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice find us at nextpictureshow.net follow us at facebook.com/nextpictureshow and follow us on twitter at @nextpicturepod so you always know when a new episode drops until then go ahead and stir your martinis guys it is really not going to hurt them that much
1: pretty girl beware of this
0: Da 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 da, love's only gold. Da 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 love's only gold.